Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. Brian Stead, the host and producer of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Jen McMenemy, ancient history fangirl. Samuel Hansen, host of the podcast Relatively Prime Stories. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Jenny Redfin. Benjamin Jacobs. David Petrusha. Eric from Reconsider. I'm Eric Marcus. Jenny Williamson. Zachary Davis. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Intelligent Speech 2019 in New York City was a blast, and I am thrilled to announce that I will be back again for 2020. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it'll be online this year at intelligentspeechconference.com. Intelligent Speech is an online conference that brings together the best educational podcasts and their listeners, and it is taking place this year online only at intelligentspeechconference.com from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on June 27, 2020. There will be approximately 40 of the best educational podcasters available that day, presenting a wide range of topics, as well as roundtable debates from several of us. And listeners will be able to fully participate online, including being involved in Q&As with all the presenters and more. A one-day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10 for early bird tickets. So for more details, go to intelligentspeechconference.com and see you there on June 27th. We shall never surrender. This will be an event that you don't want to miss, so I hope to virtually see you there at Intelligent Speech 2020. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm a hassled, bedraggled Royfield Brown who's just off a train in London, in England. Today I'm joined by TV pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton, in Canada, the ex-British Home Secretary Jackie Smith, we doff our cap to her, who is in, you're in Malden, aren't you Jackie? Yeah, in Worcestershire. Yeah. Brilliant, a lovely bit of the country, and by Mila Atmos of the Future Hindsight Podcast in New York. Say hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hi. 
The continued presence of these statues in the halls is an affront to African-Americans and the ideals of our nation. When we proclaim this to be not just a place of liberty and justice for all, but as we seek to be a more beloved nation, a kinder nation, a nation of equal respect and equal dignity, it is an assault on all of those ideals. I'm encouraged that states are looking at their history, that they're looking at who has come since they put those statues in. The uh, minority leader was the chairman of the committee that determines all of this just a handful of years ago uh, and took no actions to do what the, how the Congress, is, the Senate's talking about doing today. Uh, and so with that in mind, uh, Madam President, I object. GOP Senator Roy Blunt has blocked a bill to remove Confederate statues from the Capitol. Is he one of the last remaining politicians who's not realized that Black Lives Matter has changed politics in all aspects of American life? Um, what do you reckon, Mila? I feel like we have seen so many iterations of this over the years that I'm not uh, confident that anything is really going to change, actually. I mean, I think, if anything, it's been astounding how much more police brutality is in evidence on tape in the last three weeks. I mean, basically, the cops are willy-nilly killing people. And it's kind of like, what? Like, how is this a response to what happened to George Floyd? I don't really understand. I think it's incredibly terrifying, and I'm not sure how it's really going to shake out. And my deep instinct is that the politicians of the South will do everything they can to not make American politics, not let American politics change. But one of the kind of interesting things for me and stunning things for me is the fact that is it the mayor of Richmond has basically says we are going to remove all those Confederate statues on, on, on that grand uh, boulevard. So some of those southern politicians are grasping that this moment is different, surely, Mila? Yes, yes, of course they are. Some of them are. But I'm not sure that it's going to all work out in the way that we want it to. I mean, the way that, you know that Black Lives Matter wants it to. I think that after all this time, the fact that essentially nothing has changed since the civil rights movement, if you think about it, it's not accurate, of course. But what I'm saying is that in large parts, there are so many things that remain unchanged, that the systemic racism is so deeply entrenched that I, I can't imagine that this will be reversed through this movement at this time, especially while Donald Trump is still president. And he may get reelected. Jackie Smith, you were... The ex-British Home Secretary, which basically means you were the law and order minister for people that don't follow UK politics. When you see the statue of Edward Coulson being ripped down in Bristol, and for people that don't know, for, for our Canadian listeners and American listeners, um, Bristol City in the west of England, rather larger, last, rather large city, sorry, there's a statue of a philanthropist who made his money out of slavery, out of sugar and slaves. Um, it was ripped down about two weeks ago. Um, as the ex-law and order minister in the UK, how do you react to seeing wanton vandalism? <laughs> this is a difficult issue for people who are, as you say, in my position, uh, you know, having had a history of um, working in, in law and order. Firstly, I'm 
I was gobsmacked, frankly, that there still was a statue of Colston in Bristol because, you know, this was a man who was responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of uh, black people when they were enslaved in the way in which he treated them. And I mean, literally murdering some of them. And it had been a debate in Bristol for some time about whether or not this statue should still be there. So I have some sympathy with the fact that the statue has now gone, but some concern about the fact that it happened in the middle of a protest and obviously not having gone through a process of consultation. But, what but, I, think but I think just just on that point, ju- just to flesh the story out a little, one of the frustrations with many people in Bristol was there were so many debates mm. and consultations specifically about it, weren't there? And, and, and again, just for added optics of the whole situation, the current mayor of Bristol is, is black and his deputy is black as well. Mm. No, I think that's right, Royfield, and I can wholly understand the frustration that turned into the removal of that statue and, of course, dropping it into the river, which was something very sort of symbolic for people to see. Where I feel perhaps we're in a slightly different position in the UK is that actually not just that, but the impact of the protests in the US, the sort of horror about the killing of George Floyd, I think has impacted us in the UK in a way that I'm not sure I've seen ever before in terms of support for Black Lives Matters. The places where I now work, whether or not it's in our National Health Service or uh, in children's services in another part of of the UK, our staff uh, are really now demanding action uh, in a way that I haven't seen in all of the time that I've been in politics and involved in sort of civic life in, in the UK. So I, you know, I, I hope I'm not just being naive about this, but I really do feel that this is a time when actually we may see some change uh, in the UK. Um, and that's how, you know, our police forces are responding to that as, as well. I, I hope to say that I don't believe perhaps we have issues quite as bad as we've seen in the US. But, you know, we have nothing to be complacent about and there is more that we need to do. Just, just on the UK police as opposed to the US. And I'm going to come on to you, Laura, uh, to talk about the Canadian police and their record with Indigenous Canadians, which, which is uh, um, not great. When you, when you were Home Secretary, where were you with tasers? All the government statistics now basically do say if you are a person of colour in the UK, you're more likely to be tasered and you're more likely to have a lethal outcome. So what was your position on, on tasering when you were the minister in, in charge? And maybe one of the outcomes, which, which we'll, we'll see within the UK, is that tasering will be less of a thing, bearing in mind that just last autumn the uk government invested i forget how many million on new tasers and mm. stuff so you got to think that what's happened with george floyd and black lives matter has got to affect uh the, the uk police's use of tasers but let's just wind back to when you were the home home secretary uh, what was your position with ta- with tasers okay well royfield I, i'm i'm afraid to say i was a big supporter of, well, i'm not afraid to say i am a big supporter of the use of tasers mm-hmm. now um, what you've identified is institutional racism throughout the whole of our uh, law and order system, which, of course, David Lammy, one of our leading black politicians, now the shadow justice secretary, uh, identified in a review that he did of law and order and is now challenging the government to actually deliver his recommendations. But of course, the position we have in the UK, if you like, was when I um, 
provided and allowed tasers for frontline police officers, there was just the beginning of a movement that was beginning to say, well, why are we one of the only police forces in the world that isn't armed? Perhaps we should be armed. You know, the police have always tended to resist that in the UK, but they were facing some quite considerable violence and uh, ways, you know, difficulties with restraint, for example, because of course, George, George Floyd was subject to lethal restraint, actually. Mm. That's what that's how he was killed. And we were having some issues where people were being restrained. So actually, I saw tasers as a safer way for the police to be able to prevent people from being violent towards them, to stop them at a point at which they might be going to attack either a police officer or, or somebody else. What we now need to do, I think, is to work out why, well, I think we know why, there is a disproportionate use of those tasers against black and minority ethnic people in the system. Uh, Laura, um, over to you in in Canada. Now, we all have uh, an impression of you Canadians that you are a just, lovely, uh, maple syrup drinking uh, people. And uh, you are the calm away from the madness just to the south of your border. So it was some shock and horror uh, this week that I read that there is a lot of debate in Canada now about the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police's over-policing of native Canadians, but also the disproportionate use of the law against them. Um, Could you give us some kind of sense as to the, the current status of that debate? Well, when you juxtapose us to our large neighbour to the south, I think we're always going to look a little calmer. Uh, We just don't have the same kind of culture, although we share a number of things, including uh, when you talk about the original sin of the United States being racism and being slavery uh, in Canada, our original sin is how we've treated our Indigenous peoples from the beginning. And the United Nations did uh, speak against Canada a number of years ago for it because it's not just about how the Royal Canadian Mounted Police have treated them historically. It's about the fact that they have been treated as, as less than people. And I say that not just because of the brutality against our First Nations and our Indigenous peoples, but because of the um, not even caring about them, not even caring to protect them. I mean, the murdered and missing Indigenous women in the hundreds of women just because they were Indigenous, they just went missing and they were never, it was never bothered to investigate. They weren't no one cared, right? I mean, that's how bad it is. To me, that's totally dehumanizing. Uh, and so there was a huge report that came out about that. And then people, <laughs> pundits like myself, found ourselves on paddles, quibbling around the semantics of whether or not there is systemic racism and, and what are, you know, kind of going around the edges of what they were saying, right? But when this murder happened in the United States and the whole world had effectively been stopped in their tracks from COVID-19, the first thing that people decided to step up to was to... Uh, look at systemic racism. And so in Canada, the conversation around Black Lives Matter, which is vibrant, I mean, our our cities, our small towns are having marches, right? Um, It's very, very powerful here. We've got racialized councillors on my city council asking for a defunding of the police. The movement's very big here. But in Canada, the conversation around Black Lives Matter extends to Indigenous lives. And the conversation around policing and um, just the violence against people, racialized minorities, extends to our Indigenous people. I mean, we saw this week, to your point, Royfield, that a chief, the leader of a nation, badly beaten by the RCMP and the image of his face is not something those are his allegations but the and it's being investigated but the image of his face I mean that's no reason ever ever 
to treat a human being that way. There, there's just absolutely no reason. And there's another story that just came out. And I think there's a pattern here to what we were just talking about, about this kind of restraint technique, right? I think we're seeing, we saw it in Atlanta and we're seeing it with the latest story of an Indigenous person here in Canada. They get arrested, right? And then there is extra violence used in the restraint, a kick or a choke or stepping on the shoulders, something that causes the person to twist away in pain. And then they get beaten because they're said that they're resisting arrest. I mean, so we're dealing with another story of that just just yesterday. So, I mean, whether or not these are tricks that police think they can use to cause some kind of altercation where they can they can get out some rage. I mean, we don't know. But what we do know is that it's enough. And we've got our First Nations saying no more reports, no more studies. We've got the details like you were talking about in Bristol. We've had the conversation for decades. We've had apologies. We've had Trudeau say, you know, he was going to reboot that relationship. But we still have First Nations who don't have water uh, where they live. We still have this terrible brutality against them. We still have a lack of tracking. And so now even the Supreme Court in Canada, Statistics Canada rather, is going to look at um, look through that lens of racism just on everything in Canada, right? So I, I, I want to disagree a little bit uh, in my, in, with my colleague here from the United States. I think because of COVID kind of resetting our value of life uh, and because of the timing of everything that happened with the George Floyd video and because we have the time for this conversation right now, many of us, I, I think it will change. I think there will be differences. I think millennials are going to lead it and they're going to demand systemic changes, not to our law and order, to our courts, to our policing, to, you know, and all of us, you know, it's not for the oppressed to get out of oppression. It's for people like me who are not oppressed to try to learn and to try to help it happen. So I believe that this is a moment, uh, maybe not a change, you know, it's going to take years, but I think it's an inflection point. Uh, well said. I do want to say that I hope that Laura is right. It's just that when you're sitting here, it's like living in the U.S. and you see black people being lynched at the same time in the last few weeks. You're like, I don't know. How is it going to change? It's a, like really a cognitive dissonance that is so deep. I don't really I feel like, oh, yeah, it's going to work. And then you think, oh, no, it's all going to be the same. But I thought like but I thought you Americans deep in the American political and communal psyche is optimism, Mila. <laughs> you, 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 you. So, so come on. Optimistic. I'm optimistic about human beings that I continue to be. Well, I think in the United States specifically, the because racism is so systemic and because of the way that uh, the government is set up with the Supreme Court and the Congress, that it isn't, in fact, very hard to make, um, you know, lasting change. It's very hard. As long as you have Trump. As the president, I don't think you're going to make that kind of progress. But, you know, we're all counting down the days till November <laughs> with great hope. Yes, yes. To, be, yeah. to be fair to Donald Trump, and I never want to be fair to that man, right? <laughs> systematic racism uh, wasn't inaugurated uh, in 2017 in that cold uh, January morning when he became president. Black Lives Matter has caused a massive realignment, not just in society's consciousness towards the systematic racism that people of colour face on both sides of the Atlantic, but it's also forced business to sit up and to take a side. So we even have Yorkshire Tea and PG Tips basically saying Black Lives Matter. We have Jeff Bezos responding to a post from a customer saying, um, if you don't believe in Black Lives Matter, basically don't buy anything from Amazon again. We don't need your custom. How much of this is 
political posturing, grabbing media attention at the moment, and how much of this is principle? Look, I want businesses to have strong values and to uh, recognise the diversity in our society and to treat people right. Uh, but they fundamentally want to make a profit and they understand that uh, going with the zeitgeist is actually going to help them uh, to make a profit. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not condemning businesses for, do, for doing that, but Yorkshire Tea, much as I like it, is not going to be the answer to institutional racism. That's going to take political action and uh, it's going to take actually action throughout a load of our institutions uh, to a greater extent than has been the case up until now. And I'll have a cup of tea at the end of that, but I ain't depending on them to make the change that's necessary. But it isn't a powerful symbol. Let's say if I'm, you know, Mabel and I live in Hull and from one day to the next, I don't encounter people of another skin colour, of another religion, of another outlook. Do you have Yorkshire Tea basically saying no, right? There is a fundamental societal wrong which has been done and we stand opposed to that. Might make Mabel over in Hull sit up and think. Of, of course, as I say, I mean, you know, I think it is a good thing if they're manifesting what they think is the sort of zeitgeist at the moment. And if it does open a few people's eyes, fine, all well and good. But I do think that this is about them recognising that that's where their in, their PR interests and in the end their profit interests are based at the moment. And actually, there is almost a danger. If you think about something like uh, in the UK, uh, the Pride celebrations, there are quite a lot of people in the LGBTQ community now who believe that that has become actually overly commercialised. So there's a danger in sort of liberation struggles uh, if business thinks of it as almost like a commodity uh, and the, you know I don't think we're the, near that in terms of uh, business and uh, issues around race at the moment but it is a potential challenge for the future. Laura, um, Facebook has had this kind of really tricky position where supposedly uh, Mark Zuckerberg is all about freedom of speech and we don't actually uh, at all trample on it we just want to let a thousand voices reign and some of facebook staff have actually said no um we are actually peddling fake news because there are no restraints and the president of the united states does need to be reined back there are lies on this platform so to jackie's point how much of this corporate getting behind the zeitgeist is to do with money but also placating staff keeping your staff happy? Well, let me speak first from my PR professional lens. Uh, the There's a term, right, called whitewashing or greenwashing if you take the environmental movement. In other words, picking up something in the zeitgeist, picking up something that people are passionate about and then pretending to be doing something about it so that you're on the right side of the public relations narrative. But there's nothing substantial. There's nothing that's really going to change. So uh, we saw, for instance, uh, Quaker to, is going to get rid of Aunt Jemima and that image. And, be, and you know, they made that decision good, long overdue. They've been kind of inching towards it by switching up the picture over the years. Uh, is it better than them not doing anything? Sure, of course, especially because Quakers are supposed to be about inner light and equality. But the point is that kind of thing, papering over the problem, you know, washing over it uh, is not going to be the kind of change we need, but it might get on people's radar a little bit, which, you know, is, is a good thing. Uh, but when we look at Facebook, 
I don't think they're in a difficult position. They've made how many billions of dollars by by running that particular scheme, <laughs> you know? And now that scheme is running out of steam. They can't keep going that way because people just won't have it anymore. So they're in an ideal position to pivot. And in fact, this morning I heard, unless I was dreaming, that Zuckerberg is actually pulling down the latest Trump ads because there's a mm. Nazi symbol in them. Yeah. So this is the first time that we're seeing him, you know, he's been quite cozy with Trump and why not? It's made him a lot of money. Uh, the Trump campaign, buys tons of ads and that's been a key all along for Trump. So for him to actually do that, he'll he'll get the ire of Trump. I think Trump was seeing how far he could extend that relationship. But the conversation between promoting hate and violence and promoting free speech, I'm a former journalist, free speech is everything. But free speech doesn't mean hate speech. It doesn't mean speech that harms others. And I think that's the delineation that we have to keep bringing up for people. Uh, Jackie, um, I'm kind of the ilk now that one of the biggest dangers to civil society throughout the world actually is Facebook. Um, Discuss. I'm not of that ilk, actually. Um, Funnily enough, I'm uh, uh, this weekend in the UK, one of the um, organisations that I chair, the Joe Cox Foundation, which was set up in memory of Joe Cox, who, of course, was murdered by uh, right-wing extremists in, in the UK, is having what we call our... Jackie, you might have to explain to our American-Canadian listeners who exactly Joe Cox was. Yeah, so Joe Cox was a member of Parliament elected in 2015, and she was killed, she was murdered in her constituency in, in 2016 by an extreme right-wing um, p- a person, terrorist, essentially, uh, in the UK, who shouted Britain first as he shot and, and stabbed her. But just, just, just whilst we're on that point, and I'm so sorry for jumping in, but... Um, you did quickly correct yourself, but it's for me as a person of colour, right? It is interesting that people do not see him as actually being a terrorist. He's oh. deranged. No, if no, no. He... I never say that. <laughs> I never say that, Royfield. But you're right. Some people do. Exactly. That there is a perception that he was somebody who was deranged and just a bit unhinged. Mm. If he had been of Asian origin, he would have been a terrorist. Full stop. The the media narrative would have been this man is a terrorist. You know, Dylan Roof, uh, ditto over in the United States that went in and, and killed all those people in that black church. He's seen as a young man with emotional problems as opposed to a domestic terrorist. But I'll quickly jump in. Please don't let me derail what, what you're saying. <laughs> so, where, so where I was going, I mean, I completely agree with you, Royfield, incidentally, but where I was going with that is... Um, Facebook are big supporters of the Joe Cox Foundation and will uh, and have given us a lot of support in running the great get together weekend this weekend, which, of course, we have to do virtually because people can't actually physically get together in the UK. Uh, You know, I use Facebook because I'm old. Uh, You know, my kids are off. We're off Facebook years ago, but I use Facebook to keep in touch with friends and family, etc. I do think uh, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, other social media, Uh, have got a reckoning coming. And I think they know they've got a reckoning coming. And that's the reason why now is the moment for them to actually, before the regulators decide they're going to step in, do something about the misinformation, the the hate speech that they allow on their platforms. And I think that's probably the reason why they're shifting now. But I think there is a lot of good that has come from and can be done from social media. So I don't, you know, I don't want to see the end of Facebook. I want to see Facebook being used for good as opposed to ill. And I suppose I'm sort of optimistic about the ability of that to happen. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The England and Manchester United footballer Marcus Rashford has been speaking about his own experiences of poverty and being short of food as a child as part of his campaign for the government to provide free school meal vouchers for vulnerable children throughout the school holidays. He's written to every MP for support after helping to raise £20 million for food for low-income families during the lockdown. In an emotional letter, he describes how his mother, a single parent, struggled to feed her five children while earning the minimum wage. You know, my mum, she'd done the best she could. I remember we used to go to a shop called um, Pound World and everything was under a pound and, you know, we'd sort of schedule out the week so we'd get seven yoghurts and you can have one yoghurt a day and this is all going on at a time where kids should be concentrating on schoolwork and it's just crazy to think that this this is still going on at this, you know, we're in 2020 now and it's just something that I don't believe should be should be happening. As residents in Georgia lined up for hours Tuesday to exercise their right to vote, NBA superstar LeBron James took notice. Outraged, he went on Twitter and asked some pointed questions. Everyone talking about how do we fix this, he wrote. They say, go out and vote? What about asking if how we vote is also structurally racist? On Wednesday, James set out to answer those questions by advocating political change. He announced the formation of an organization to inspire and protect voter participation by African Americans. James said he will partner with other athletes and celebrities. He says the campaign, called More Than a Vote, will help register African American voters and also publicly call out efforts to deny voting rights or discourage turnout. Also joining the campaign is Atlanta Hawks guard Trey Young, who recently appeared at a Black Lives Matter protest in Oklahoma. Skylar Diggins-Smith, a women's basketball star with the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury, will participate, as will former NBA player and ESPN sports personality Jalen Rose. Obviously, social media is a very powerful uh, medium for marginalized people to get their voices out and also for celebrities uh, to amplify messages. Uh, so it's not by accident that uh, sportsmen, specifically black sportsmen, at the moment have actually used social media uh, to campaign 
are we seeing, because of Black Lives Matter, really the intellectual and marketing and societal muscle of uh, black sportsmen really coming to the fore? Um, Jackie, uh, could you tell us exactly what's happened with Marcus Rashford, what exactly he's campaigned and been successful for uh, just this week in the UK? Yeah, so Marcus Rashford plays for Man United, you know, internationally uh, well-known and successful football team. Not one I support, but, um, you know, known across the world. He plays for England as well. He's a young black man, 22. And this week he, he or he has been supporting for some time charities that support uh, vulnerable families, particularly to be able to feed their children. And this week uh, his campaign to make sure that the vouchers that would be being provided for children to be able to eat, to have a, a, a what would normally be called a free school meal, but because schools are closed to be able to eat, would could continue through the summer holidays. And it seemed as if the government was resisting this. And actually, Marcus Rashford's campaign was brilliant in its... Um, uh, the way in which it used social media, the fact that obviously he was extremely well known, the sort of very measured approach that he took actually to the way in which he uh, went about campaigning. And on what, Tuesday, I think it was, the government conceded. And in fact, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, made a big thing about having said, I've phoned up Marcus Rashford and we've had a conversation and, you know, it's all good. Was it and- Daniel Radcliffe? Wasn't it Daniel Radcliffe he called? Uh, Daniel, no, no, that was Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health, who called him Daniel Rashford, uh, a a terrible blunder for a politician. I mean, having been there, I do know these things happen, but it was just like particularly crass, given the publicity that he's had all this week. I did think that um, Matt Hancock, when, you know, when he realised... Did you know handle it so well? But he was really riffing on the fact that his daughter really liked Harry Potter, and <laughs> <laughs> and he completely got the the, the wrong celebrity. Um, Laura, um, in the United States, LeBron James has uh, come out and basically said that he's going to uh, create and support an organisation which is about getting out the vote. Um, this also runs in lockstep with various NFL players. Um, starting to uh, flex their influence, shall we say, and the NFL, hardly the most um, liberal of organisations, admitting that what they've done to Colin Kaepernick has actually been wrong. Is this going to be uh, somewhat of a sea change now? Can you see that, whether it's in the United States, also in Canada, that um, this is a moment for sportsmen to use social media as a platform uh, for change? It's huge because I think for a long time there was a backlash against celebrities or sports leaders saying, you know, we don't care what you think about politics, stay in your lane, stay in the game. That's not what we pay you big salaries for. We don't want to hear your thoughts on issue X, Y, Z. That's always been out there. And I know I keep going back to COVID, but in in just the 20 years I've been practicing public relations and reading trends in the zeitgeist and everything else, I've never seen a bigger reset. I've never seen people looking at their values, people looking at their relationships, people looking at their priorities more than I have in this, you know, and, 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 and many of us had struggles with it. Uh, it was incredibly difficult psychologically for so many around the world to just process this, let alone get through it safely. And so I think what we're seeing now is 
people have no more you know what's to give <laughs> about what people think about them myself included right i mean life is so short <laughs> there's something out there that god forbid i catch it uh and not only could i spread it to more vulnerable people but i could i could also be vulnerable to some terrible things so are we gonna hold back and say oh i'm a little afraid that uh you know that someone might say that i'm stepping out of my lane no, if you feel passionately about something, now's the time. You know, we have these massive platforms on our on our social media, celebrities especially, in the millions, right? This is this is more than they would get from doing a, a, a broadcast news interview. So of course they should use them. Of course they should speak up. Who cares anymore about those kind? And I mean, that's part of why I think the hierarchical structure is collapsing. Social media started that process by giving people a platform based on something other than how they were born into society right and the kind of money in their bank account but now uh, there's an opportunity because social media is more powerful than mainstream media for people to go out and say you know what here's my position here's what we need to do here's my activism and if you don't like it and you don't think it's who you know of me or my brand I don't care this is more important uh, Jackie um, Laura said that social media is more important than traditional media and um, potentially these uh, practitioners on it, these sportsmen, these celebrities um, can actually have more influence than you politicians. Does that mean that you guys are redundant? There's no space for politicians anymore. Um, and if so, what are you going to do next? No, of course, there's always space for politicians, Royfield. They just need to get on social media and to use it effectively. And interestingly, just today in the UK, we've had a publication of a report that uh, has been put together into why the UK Labour Party did so dreadfully in the last general election in, in December. And one of, I mean, there are lots of conclusions, but one of the conclusions from it is we were poor at using digital and social media in order to get our message over. But so I thought, politicians forever, but, you know, find a different way to communicate. But I thought Jeremy Corbyn did so well in the election before on social media. Yeah, but we still oh, lost Jeremy Corbyn, all that. He had, he had all the... I was going to say all the kids. I'm showing my age now. All the younger <laughs> adults, you know, um, singing his tune, didn't they? But I think, I mean, even if we did do well on social media in 2017, um, I mean, first of all, let's not forget, we still lost the election. So, you know, that was rather overhyped from supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, that election. Uh, we certainly did far worse in 2019. And, you know, although social media isn't the answer to political campaigning or any sort of campaign, it wasn't the only answer, if, if you're not doing it and you're not doing it right, you're going to find it very difficult to either get your political message over or, in fact, to win elections in, in this day and age in, in countries like the UK, I suspect the US and Canada as well. It reminds um, me so much uh, back in the day when they when TV started, right? And radio listeners were like, oh, this is a flash in the pan. Yeah, it's yeah. never going to go anywhere. <laughs> you know? And then YouTube started, right? And everyone in mainstream TV was like, hey, you know what? Those YouTube, that's never going to amount to anything. And now it's the second biggest search engine in the world. And millennials get their news from YouTube. And we're seeing smart television people still mainstream media. Uh, I hope myself, one of them, who are trying to say things in clip-sized bites that can play better. I get more traction on some of my shows on the clips that are posted on social than I do on the actual broadcast. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the point is, is that uh, you have to get in there. I think it was Justin Trudeau, actually, before when he was just running 
running for the leadership of the party way, way back, uh, where he said, you know, the, the public squares on social media now, you don't drag people to a physical location. We're going years back. You go to them on Facebook, wherever they are. And that's always been how good communicators look at their audience. Not where do I bring them? Where do I go to find them? And how do I connect with them in their space and in their ways? So yeah, social media is only getting started. <laughs> so people yeah. don't want to figure out how to navigate that world. They're going to be left behind. I mean, Laura's exactly right. This morning, I did my regular Friday morning appearance on Good Morning Britain, which is, a, you know, the big morning show in uh, in the UK. I made the a way comment. I start my every Friday. By Thank the way. you. Thank you. I feel <laughs> I made a comment about Dominic Raab and his idiotic suggestion that taking the knee came, comes from uh, Game of Thrones and sort of condemned him. They clipped that and put it onto Twitter. I had massively more uh, sort of response from the Twitter um, clip than I ever had from saying it on the original uh, program. So, you know, I think Laura's absolutely right. Can I just say about taking a knee? Because a tr Justin Trudeau took a knee <laughs> right during the Black That Lives was going to be my next question. Go on. <laughs> I'm in TV, I can segue. <laughs> um, the, uh, the fact that he took a knee during the Black Lives Matter protest was an act of, of humility and uh, an act of humility he was caught with rec with numerous blackface uh, incidents uh, he apologized the second time better than the first time when he realized how much trouble he was in but he knows that he does not have a great record or a good record on that issue and so there were people on the conservative right who tried to criticize him and say he's confusing he wasn't confusing anyone everyone knew what that was was to say he needed to be there because he needs to be part of the solution he is the leader of the country but he certainly was better taking a knee and 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 being humble and listening and i have to give credit i i, I rarely do i remember when we thought mitt Romney was the worst thing ever when he was running for president years ago, the binder <laughs> women and all the rest of it. But when Mitt Romney was seen in a Black Lives Matter protest in Washington, not with a big entourage, not with everybody else, just with a mask saying Black Lives Matter. Uh, that's why I'm here. I think that sent a powerful message for uh, not just Mormons, but I think the evangelicals look at Mitt Romney as someone with more ethics than the average member of the GOP. And, and that was powerful. So I think uh, that on social media went around, you know, got much more traction than it would have gone. And we're even seeing one last point on social media. Uh, the, the Lincoln Project in the United States is using social media to put out videos almost daily, taking down Trump as only uh, a member of the family can. They're a Republican group, right? And they are vicious, but brilliant ads. And their social media is their main go-to. And then the mainstream shows pick up their social media posts, right? So, I mean, it's changed. It's the other way around now. You do it on social and it, it can go to mainstream and then you get more clips after that. Uh, Mila, John Bolton has, is about to release a book of which the press have excerpts. And in a way, none of it comes as, as a surprise. Your president is ignorant of the basic facts of the world, that Britain um, is an, uh, a nuclear power, that Finland has been independent from the Russian Empire since 1917. Um, Mike Pompeo says he talks shit. It goes on and on and on. Will these revelations, or are they even revelations, will these disclosures of this book have any difference uh, to the Trump administration between now and the next election? Uh, definitely not. So uh, I would say that uh, it would have been much better for Bolton to have testified so that it would be on the record. But as we all know, 
Republicans during the impeachment trial voted not to have more evidence because they know the evidence, everything that Bolton is saying, they knew this, they have heard these things, they didn't want those things out in public so that they could look like they could acquit along party lines, and that's exactly what they did. And if they had had Bolton on and testify under oath, then they would have looked even more craven. I mean, they still look craven, no question, but they would have looked even more craven then, you know, and I think this way they punted that down the road uh, and now it's coming out and it's, you know, the impeachment is behind us. So John Bolton got approximately $2 million for it for his book advance. Was that more important than his patriotism? Uh, well, I would, you would have to ask him whether his patriotism was worth $2 million. But, 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 but what I don't understand is so many Republican politicians, well, let's not just paint Republicans with this brush, right-wing politicians throughout the world wrap themselves up in the flag of their country. They utterly do all the time. Here you have an instance where um, the head of state of a country is acting against the interests of the state. Elected politicians of the highest level, we're not talking about city councillors or city dog catchers, we're on about senators, of which there are only a hundred of these, it's such an exalted position, know that in effect the president is a traitor and is only self-serving. Wouldn't you think to hell with the electoral calculus that I'm going to keep my head down and maybe I might win my Senate race in November, that, that the United States, something that I profess to support, is more important than short-term political calculus. I would say that their calculus is not short-term at all. They want to hang on to power under all circumstances. And they have come to this point. It's taken decades to where we are today. The people who are in power today are essentially the same people that Nixon would have hired. And I'm really not joking about that. These people have been systematic in dismantling the Voting Rights Act uh, and dismantling rights for workers, rights for poor people over the last 50 years. And so for them to hang on to power you know, they, they have clawed their way back after Watergate, you know, so here they are. And they're not going to give every it takes, including supporting this man, because they've gotten all these judicial nominations ran through. These people are going to be on the court for life for the next 30 years. You know, the United States will be a fundamentally conservative country for the next 30 years. People are unqualified to serve as um, as judges are confirmed. But OK, you think two, two things on that, though, Mila. Number one. Um, it was the Republican establishment that told Nixon to go mm. um, at Watergate. It was them. There was a very different view that uh, the Republican establishment had then. They said, what you've done is wrong, right? The interests of the nation need to come first. Okay, that, that's one. And then number two, we just had a Supreme Court uh, decision uh, this week where Gorsuch, a Trump uh, appointee, has voted with, um, with the Liberals. So whilst I understand that um, part of the Republican project is to pack the, the judiciary with uh, conservative judges. And they have. And they have, right. A lot of these judges still are independently minded enough 
that they can vote um, against this, their supposed um, ethical view. Gorsuch's mm-hmm. argument um, makes complete, complete not a sense, but conservatives will say, huh, we thought we were appointing a, a conservative judge. But anyway, but, 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 wait, wait, wait. but, but wait a minute, but, but, but one second, but my point I think still stands. If you are packing American uh, courts for the next 30 years as they are doing, right? The short-term calculus from June to November is exactly that, short-term. You can still say, this man is doing wrong, kick him out of, kick him out of office, put Mike Pence in, and even if you lose the next election, you still have the Supreme Court, which is majority in your favour, etc., and all the other circuit ju- uh, circuit judiciaries around the United States. To your point, that's why Mitch McConnell rammed as, rammed as many people as possible through, because he may only have one term, right? But so essentially... The fact that uh, Trump is so incendiary and is throwing bombs left, right and center actually distracts from the fact about how reactionary our court is becoming. (laughs) You know, people are not paying attention because we have COVID. We have a crazy man in the White House. We have Black Lives Matter, you know, and people don't understand that at the same time, Mitch McConnell is continuing, continuing right now to to get people nominated and approved to serve on the court. Um, and Gorsuch, by the way, he mm. will be anti-poor people. He will be pro-corporations. So he voted for for the LGBTQ community in this instance. But make no mistake, if there's another thing like Citizens United, something about, you know, campaign finance laws, he's going to vote conservative in favor of money over people. There is no question. No question at all. Um, Jackie, um, I know when you were in office in the UK, Trump was not the president of the United States. But give us some kind of a sense of like briefings that go on, right? So everybody knows this man is incompetent um, intellectually, emotionally, et cetera, et cetera. Would you have got a government, let's say if you were to meet him, whether it was, you know, a state dinner or you had some business, you had to go over to the United, uh, to the United States. Would you actually have a briefing from the civil service to say, he doesn't know what he's talking about, basically. Well, well yes, Royville, because, of course, let's not forget, we lost our ambassador to Washington on the basis that the things that he said about the Trump White House became public. Uh, so, yes, you know, that's what we expect our ambassadors to do. And um, certainly you would, you know, I visited Washington two or three times as part of my um, Home Secretary role. And, yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessary at, at uh, that point to have... Uh, I, I sort of um, was uh, that a sort of hangover from Bush to Obama happened during my time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it wasn't necessary to say these guys are crazy because they weren't compared to um, the current incumbent. But yes, of course, you get a briefing about, you know, the um, what type of things he's going to be focusing on, what type of things you're, you know, the people that you're going to be uh, working with are going to be interested in, what is the... Um, administration focused on at that particular point. Yes, yes, you do. And as I say, it does include, in the case of Trump, uh, you know, all of the manifest weaknesses as well. Laura, physically where you are, you're the countries of the closest to the United States and, and, and culturally you share so much in common. Give us a sense on a practical basis to do with like Canadian politics, how informed it is by 
the ruptures that go on in America? Tremendously so. We have the premier of our largest province, Ontario, who went on Fox, you know, Fox News show uh, because he, he has always spoken highly of Trump. He's a populist and had conservative values. Now we've seen a pivot from him during COVID to a much more compassionate, um, less, you know, less sort of boisterous and, and bumper, you know, um, bumper sticker kind of politician. He's actually been a little more nuanced and, and he's gotten a lot of points for that. In Canada, we're partisan somewhat, but we have three parties and we tend not to get ferociously partisan. If we see a politician pivot or do something well, we tend to give credit. Uh, we're, we're, stru we're structured differently, of course. And so, but we're seeing uh, very much so that Canadian leaders are juxtaposed to Trump all the time. Again, it makes most leaders around the world look good by comparison. I mean, the daily barrage of garbage that comes out of his Twitter feed, not even his Rose Garden speeches, uh, it's horrific. I mean, yesterday, talking about those judgments you were discussing on the Supreme Court going against him, likening them to, you know, gunshots in the face. I mean, what is he doing? He's about, it's Juneteenth, uh, I believe, today, and a and, uh, celebration of emancipation. And here he is going into that very place where where black businesses were burned down and and many people were killed. Uh, and he's going in there to have a big rally. And and they're they're terrified, rightly so, that his supporters are going to cause some kind of violence. I mean, against the celebrations. I mean, it is just terrible. So in Canada, yes, we're I think naturally a little bit more optimistic. I think naturally, I and mean, we banned assault um, weapons right after there was a mass shooting by somebody in our east coast just a couple of months ago uh you know we have a different culture but we are highly informed because we share american media i mean i live a couple of hours not even from the u.s border i could be there in 45 minutes right i mean this is how most canadians live so um we try very hard i think even when we consider our national leadership when there's a national federal election to juxtapose what's happening in the u.s somewhat right i mean we we, we really feel a responsibility not to align ourselves too closely with the Republican Party or the conservatism, or I would argue the Trumpism, the white nationalism of the United States, we're fighting very hard against that. There's very little appetite for it in Canada. In fact, the leader of our third party got suspended out of the, the House of Commons for calling another party member a racist and not apologizing. The Sir Jagmeet Singh, who's racialized, got kicked out. And there and some people are calling for him to be suspended. And the prime minister is standing up for him and others saying, you know, when someone's calling out racism, it shouldn't be that person that gets suspended. It should be the, the people who don't want to look at systemic racism. So, I mean, there's a lot going on, Royfield. But yes, absolutely. The U.S. informs our discussion up here. And, and in that way that I hope we try to balance against the worst of it. So it's that time where we put politics to one side and we uh, commune with our fellow man or woman. And uh, obviously, we, we are still exercising social distancing. So these are going to be virtual hugs we're going to put around each other or maybe just a touch of the elbow. And uh, Jackie, I know that every, every fortnight when we do a Mid-Atlantic, you download the shows and you listen to them. So you don't need me to explain what takeaways of the week are. Do you? <laughs> just remind me, Roy. Finn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, it, it's... Um, it's where we don't talk about politics and it's just something nice that's happened to you in the last week. It could be a book that you've read, a show that you've watched, um, anything, right? So I'll come to you last so you've got Thank a little you. bit of time to think. Okay. All right. Um, Laura Babcock, what's been your takeaway of the last seven days? 
I love that you positioned it that way. It's a perfect layup because what I was going to say was our pride organizers here in my city in Canada, they realized they had to move to a virtual pride. And, you know, I had one of the their leaders on one of my shows and he was saying before the event how missing that actual physical hug, that solidarity, that support that one gets, you know, when you hug an ally, when you hug somebody who understands your struggle, they were going to lose that physicality, that touch. And it, and it brought him to tears on the show, it brought me to tears, my daughter who was producing, um, she's only nine, but, you know, she was very moved by it. And then they had their virtual pride. And they, uh, they, it was as meaningful, someone said, who was at a Pride in 1981 uh, as anything else because they were able to transition into a virtual space and create that sense of, of love and, and hug and solidarity. And, and uh, it was a beautiful thing to hear about. It was a beautiful thing to see them post about. And I, I'm sure they're anxious as we all are to get back to a place and a space where we can safely hold each other up physically, but for them to be able to have done that, um, I, I just think it's a beautiful takeaway for us all. You know, we will adapt. We will find ways to make the world a better place, even if we can't do it in the traditional ways that we're used to. Uh, my takeaway isn't too far different from that, but I traveled on, on a train yesterday, not sorry, last week uh, from Birmingham to London. And I got off at St. Pancras station, which I just, love that station it's all the things that i love about um about architecture it was on the inside incredible incredibly modern great straight lines and whatever but from the outside it's this great victorian edifice it's this beautiful gothic building and i realized when i got to london that lots of people were just looking at me and smiling i think london the uk was just starting really to open up again and so many people just looked me in the face and just smiled, didn't say anything. And, and that meant so much. When I got to my destination, I did realize that my pair of headphones, which I thought were in my bag, were around my neck. And I was wearing another pair of headphones on top of my head. So maybe people just look at me saying, what kind of idiot is this? <laughs> How many pairs of headphones does he actually have on his person? <laughs> However, I'm going to go with the former thought that this was just a case of, human beings recognizing each other and what we've gone through in this pandemic and just showing their humanity and their solidarity by just smiling to another fellow human being. Uh, Jackie Smith, um, what's been your takeaway over the last seven days? Well, Royful, we may end up losing, uh, falling out over this, but mine was the joy that I felt on Wednesday evening at six o'clock when football came back to... uh, (laughs) came back to us and of course my team Aston Villa uh, were the first team to play uh, as the Premier League uh, restarted behind closed doors no crowd apart from the rather weird tick hand crowd sound if you listen to it on one of the Sky channels but it was just a joy to see football back again as far as I was concerned. Well but why wasn't Hawkeye working? Why wasn't that technology working? Now, just for people that, that, that don't know, there's a, a couple of things I think are quite powerful about that. Not only are we starting to crank back to some level of normalcy um, because sport um, is back on TV. Um, we also had the, all of the players, instead of having their names on the back of their shirts, it said Black Lives Matter. And at the kickoff, 
all of them and the referees and linesmen were on one knee. Now, I know some people have said, well, they're just cashing in. It's a little bit cynical. I, I, I don't care. Yeah. It's an incredible, powerful moment. And for that to be publicised, to be filmed, to be broadcast throughout the world, because the, the Premier League is the most broadcast league of the most popular sport in the world. Incredibly powerful. You didn't know the names of any of these players were just casual. You thought all of them were called Black Lives Matter. It's incredibly powerful. And then to spoil the moment, Villa were denied the defeat that they deserved because technology <laughs> failed. Sheffield United, a good, solid, working-class team, of, you know, we don't fight. You know, they're just they're the team of the common man in that great city of Sheffield had a goal chalked off even though the ball went behind the line. How as a Villa fan can you sit there, Jackie, and and not recognise the fact that they were robbed? Because we had massively the greatest level of possession, Royfield. We had more attempts on goal. And I'm sorry, we all know that there have been various different times with all of the football teams that we support where we've been robbed by technology. So the fact that we were... Okay, yeah, marginally helped by the failure of technology. Marginally helped? Feels like a fair deal to me. Let's say it's the end of the season and you stay up by one point. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Would you, on on that last day of the season, could you actually go to bed safe and sound and happy? No, because I'll be dancing in the streets. So that's been us talking about the week, both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but before we go, you're probably wondering, how can you keep tabs on uh, our pundits, our contributors this week? So Jackie Smith, if people want to catch up with you on social media, how can that be done? Probably best through Twitter. I'm at Jackie underscore Smith one. And the Jackie is J-A-C-Q-U-I. How about you, Laura? Laura Babcock on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And bringing up the rear, Mila, how about you? You can definitely follow me on Twitter at milaatmos.com. That's M-I-L-A-A-T-M-O-S. Not dot com, sorry, just at milaatmos on Twitter. And of course, uh, you can follow me if you want tweets about the archers, which are badly spelt, have no grammar or punctuation, which belie the fact that I went through the English educational system. I'm dyslexic. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. And if I ever get round to it, I'll actually put some posts up on our Twitter feed for Mid-Atlantic Show, which is quite simply at Mid-Atlantic Show on Twitter. That's been us. We'll see you all again in approximately 14 days' time for more analysis and debate on politics on both sides of the Atlantic. Bye-bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.